Good morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank one minute at a time. I'm Dev. And I'm you. And on today's show, we are going to be looking at minute 51 of the film, starting off of all places inside the men's toilets at the Hippo Club. And on today's show, uh, on our third attempt, uh, we have another host from Listening to Paint Dry, Mike. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's good to have you on, buddy. Yeah. Pleasure. Hopefully, this time we'll be able to succeed and uh... <laughs> get, yeah, this get is us. Take- three or four isn't it it's just, yeah this is take three now uh and we managed as much as six minutes of recording the first time so let's see if the, hopefully gross point blank doesn't turn into groundhog's day for us right yeah, yeah. Or, or, or in my case happy death day which i finally watched last night for the first time <laughs> i've still not seen that i need to see that so good yeah it's so good i watched that in the sequel back to back honestly i have not been so surprised by a film in ages it's just fun pure fun uh, anyway, to be fair, that it has in common with Gross Point Black. Um, but yes, we are inside the club, which is where we've left off before, um, prior to this week, and we are listening to, we have that sudden moment where the revelation that having confronted the NSA agents and Martin Blank leaving, actually, Gross has been there all along, he's standing, quote, character steps out of, the men's, out of one of the stalls, confronts the agents, and starts accusing them of not actually wanting to do the job he's expecting them to do. Yeah. The summary? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's it's interesting having this tension in in the film at this point where you know, in, initially it just feels like Gross is ratting out uh blank and and just like kind of setting the dogs on him. And mm-hmm. this this conversation, this dialogue clearly makes it apparent that Gross is taking this much more personally. He's getting personally involved and yeah. he feels like he is in control uh of um the narrative and 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 what's going on and and the nsa agents are are starting to really push back on that um yeah and it's kind of interesting because we've only seen him you know the first time we saw him ring them one had the impression that he was being a narc you know he happened to know them but now that the power dynamic seems very very different so yeah i mean I, I do love the dialogue here. I love that the NSA is just like, you know, um, pulling Gross's leg a little bit as well. Like they, they're clearly not intimidated by him at all. No, um, no they're not. Yeah. <laughs> they are government sanctioned. <laughs> but they're not assassins. No, no but if someone, <laughs> get, if someone dies on their watch, they're not overly bothered either, are they? <laughs> <laughs> just another casualty. You know, it's a, it's always a, a good way to start a scene with Dan or Aykroyd in the bathroom, right? I mean, it's just, that's just a, like, it's almost like it's comedy gold to begin with, you know? Having having just watched um, War Inc., or at least a, a good chunk of it, I, I didn't quite finish it last night. Um, you will also be pleased to, to know that there is a Dan Aykroyd toilet scene in that film as well. So <laughs> Nice. There's nice. a checklist of what makes gross point blank work, and that includes Danny Croydon and toilets. Yeah, you know, and it, it's a it's an interesting confrontation too because I I 
um, as somebody who had to rewatch and then rewatch the movie, then rewatch that go through the, the minute parts of it. Uh, it was interesting looking at it from a different, like looking at it from a lens that I was going to analyze as opposed to be entertained by it per se. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it really is the, I really thought it was funny that you guys have pointed out that, yeah, the NSA really, the level of ambivalence that those two guys have is like almost not, it's epic in it. Like that in of itself feels like a story in it into itself, how they, they don't care about him. They just, you know, they're there for a purpose and whatever happens, happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to them, gross is just another informant, right? Like gross is right. just ratted on somebody great. Like we're all good now. Like you can go home kind of a deal. Uh, right. Right. And it definitely there, his value to them, it, it's apparent that whatever value he brought has now been expended. Yeah. Right. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we do then after, after the bathroom scene cut to um, uh, Martin and Debbie leaving the hippo club and you kind of see the building frontages in a, in a way that I didn't really notice before. Like I didn't recall him going past the hippo club on previous cuts where he's like going past the radio station. Yet it's clearly a couple doors down and it's mm. got this weird, like wooden frontage thing where everything else is like traditional brick. Um, that just, I don't know. It, it looks really odd and I can't, I can't decide if it looks like n- nicely designed or just terribly designed. I feel like it's the <laughs> latter. <laughs> passing judgment on small towns <laughs> i mean it's it's got this like kind of you know wild west kind of vibe to it with with the wood or like you know mm, yeah. frontier a frontiersman's kind of vibe you almost mm. expect it to have swing doors uh, yeah there's a bit of that it's, it also reminds me of an irish pub in uh in where i lived in switzerland in geneva which was a really kind of very basic pub opposite the station. I mean, it was mainly just for people to drink uh, yeah. when they're traveling, you know, like between picking up buses or trains and stuff. And um, But it was also one of the only places that didn't really worry about ID. So in my school, that's where we all <laughs> first went. Um, it was one of two places that really didn't bother them. But the thing was, it claimed to be a, an, English, an English pub. And it was, there was nothing, sorry, this is, this is the English pub, not the Irish one. But it claimed to be an English one. And there was nothing English about it whatsoever, stylistically. It looked quite literally like the hippo pub on the outside. Very weird design. I get there's something sort of cheap and... Uh, uh, like it's it's that whole thing of bars that don't want to be daylit inside. They want to keep a dark interior all yeah. the day, you yeah. know. And you sit inside, then you barely notice what time it is, which is the point. Um, there's a, there's a bit of that, but also your point about it being kind of frontier, like you know, we've mentioned before on this podcast the uh the way there was something in the air at this time with Northern Exposure on American TV and but then on British TV at the same time. Yeah, and you know, there's very much it it. it it's not. I don't think it's just the radio station itself that feels like the radio station in Northern Exposure. It's the town. Yeah, you know, it's not I think as right. small. It's not as small, but it's yeah. it's yeah. There's a certain sense but of a movie small town. And I guess a whole it's band. You should be able to talk about uh, that at length. I I totally get that, but there's something about it being a midwestern small town that it just doesn't feel right. Well, well, I don't know. That's, that's the whole point. We know they're faking it. 
Well, yeah, I think mean, that's true. We, that's we know true. that this is all shot outside, you know, in one of the, the suburbs of Los Angeles. So therefore, yeah. that's part of the problem. Maybe is that it feels like a screen, like a you know, like a typical LA production version yeah. of a Midwest small town. I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're out on the East Coast, Mike. Is this the kind of bar frontage you could imagine seeing in a small high street? Um, maybe. It's it's more like it resembles as opposed to it is like it's like somebody's memory of what if they used to live in a small town, it's what they look like. I mean, what 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 Hugh said is just an interesting thing to me that, you know, this Irish pub in Switzerland, you know, like it's like for us, it's like in, in the US, it, it, like the same type of concept is like, oh, I went to a Steelers bar in Missouri. Right. Like as opposed to being in Pittsburgh, you know what I mean? So it's just it's it's funny to hear. We speak about the same things, but just kind of in a different context, right? Like, you know, your context is from country to country because of the way Europe is set up, whereas here we're like, you know. Dev is almost as far away from me in America as you are, Hugh, in the UK. Exactly. I mean, the time difference says it all, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked for companies based in both New York and in Houston, so I, I get it, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. I visited both as well. And I think it's kind of interesting because, again, Houston, our, the, one of the first things our colleagues in the office wanted to do was to take us to their English pub. Like, we're in Houston. We don't need to go to an English pub. Right. If you're in Houston, you, know? you need to get some Tex-Mex and some barbecue exactly. and get like, absorbed. <laughs> what yeah. the culture is absolutely it's, get a big bowl of steak chili yeah know. well we couldn't we didn't do the barbecue till the second day the first day we got off the plane and we go to, went to the office go to see our, my boss for dinner and then afterwards it's like uh, the friend we're the assistant the, uh, the office assistant who we're staying with she's like right we're going drinking it takes us to this pub and we're like what what why is this thing called the richmond it's like <laughs> i lived near richmond what's going on you know it was bizarre but there is that but again that's the sort of thing that sort of makes everything feel slightly less real mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. and i and that's that's the thing with the film isn't it and and it's also the, what we said before about genre shifting within this film because like we've gone from the thriller aspect just now in the men's lose you know that that staple of so many action films for god knows how long now to the couple walking slowly down the very very well lit nighttime street <sighs> nobody bothering them there's there's no noise there's nothing it's just very quiet you know yeah. there's very much a kind of movie sense of what it's like to be that couple um uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to amy in the background there like dashing from the cab she's clearly like forgotten something in the bar and is trying to get it yes. back like that was just, funny i was like yeah beautiful little touch for for the yeah the they could have made. It's a shame they didn't make more of that. Like just a little bit more, like ten seconds more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, I think maybe it's maybe a good way to put it is maybe it's like somebody from another country came in and saw what a midwestern town looked like, and this was their memory of it. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. and the the point that you make too about the fact that they're on a they're on a street that theoretically in front of a busy club. Mm. which in the u.s would have a line would have bouncer would have noise right they are yeah. nicely isolated to have this dialogue in a background with nothing interfering you know yeah 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 i mean you know. sadly i think it really does come down to 
Hugh's point of like they're filming out in LA and this is what they could they could get. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think I think Mike, you know, your point about it being someone's memory. I think in this case, this is the whole thing, isn't it? We know that Cusack and his buddies who are producers as well as co-writers, as well as in one case, and you know, acting in a small role. We know that they're all from the Midwest. Yeah. So in that sense, it's almost like their collective, you know, memory. Yeah, I mean, the original writer like. as well, right? Was well, yeah, was, true. True. Yeah. Um, Where are they from so, yeah. originally? They're all from the Midwest, I think. Are they from yeah. the Midwest? Okay. Yeah. Mm, yeah, all of them. So Jankowitz, DeVincentis, Steve Pink, mm-hmm. and then Cusack himself. Yeah. Interestingly enough. And, but but yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting touch, again, in a film that feels ever so slightly sort of hallucinatory in places, but not it never completely goes for that kind of atmosphere. It's much more interesting than just being about individual experiences. Um, yeah. As well as an action film, yeah. I don't know. I see. I guess too. I just you just made me think about it. Is is it just supposed to be? I guess maybe maybe the nature of it almost may do. I maybe the outside of the club was somewhat disposable to them as far as the context goes, and mm. so they are just like, okay, we'll just put a little bit here and here. The, yeah. Those will be hints that we're in a Midwest town and go, you know what I mean? Like that, maybe, yeah. maybe it's just supposed to allude to a location and they don't want you to focus on the location at all. They want you to hear the dialogue. And and they wanted a real location, right? So they, they, they wanted a location that gave you the radio station. I think the radio station is probably the most important element of this, given that they were clearly shooting both inside and outside of that building. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was just like, what can we do to put up a bar? And I, I suspect that frontage isn't actually there. They just put up that frontage to mm. mask the whatever is actually there, which may be like, you know, a supermarket or something and give it like a, a bar vibe um, to, you know, and, and that was the easiest way to do it was to put up this wooden frontage. Yeah. And in all fairness too, there are places that are, like you could go to a strip mall here in the U.S., anywhere in the U.S., and go to a Japanese steakhouse that's one of 20 businesses in the strip mall, and the whole front of the Japanese steakhouse is done uh, like a temple or a dojo, so it looks way out of place with the what? rest of what's in the strip mall. And so, or it, even it could be like a, there was a Renaissance style restaurant. It wasn't medieval times, so there were no knights or anything, but the whole front of it was a castle, oh a my fake God. castle. But then on one side, it had like a Petco. And then the other side, it had, you know, a shoe store. And so it just looked, you know, it was anachronistic at that point. Like it didn't look, it looked out of place and out of time, you know? <laughs> mm. the, the definition of tacky <laughs> as well, I guess. <laughs> I, I said the word strip mall and United States. So it's hacky as Sorry, kind of yeah, a given. Fair enough. Sorry, kind my of apologies. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole concept of strip mall in and of itself, especially like yeah, in the US where you get yeah. a major mall and then around it, it's circled with orbits of strip malls. And so like yeah. apparently the commercial gravity of a mall draws in the weaker strip malls into its orbit, you know? <laughs> mm, gotcha. Interesting. The black hole of dollars. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's also that whole thing about, yeah, I mean, it's also about where the footfall goes, doesn't it? Yes. You know, because, I mean, we've got this problem in the town I live in here in Wickham where they built a new proper big size mm-hmm. shopping mall back in the late 90s. We finished in the early 2000s. It was, you know, gleaming and glass and all the rest of it. And it practically killed off the town centre itself. And so in the 10 plus years I've been living here, they've been working really hard to try and keep the town centre and the high street going. Um, simply because, you know, footfall has gone completely in a different direction, you know. Um, and, yeah, the, occasionally there are bits of it that have a, 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 that sort of feel. you kind of like, really, we're going to put that shop there? Okay, I guess we kind of have to because, you know, there's nothing else going on in that bit. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Debbie's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, the the way that the edit almost reminds us that, Debbie has absolutely no clue what's just happened in the men's. You know, the, the the mood, the film itself, the mood shifts so neatly between those. You know, there's that tone in the bathroom, which is, is there going to be a fight? Is something going to happen or not? Are they, yeah, they're sizing each other up. They're, they're being wise asses to each other, but where's it going to go? And then we switch outside and at no point in this scene am I thinking, God, Gross is going to come out behind them and shoot them or anything. Do you know what I mean? There's just yeah. no sense of that. Yeah. You know, we're back in Hong Kong territory and, you know, the way they stop outside the radio and the the neon light lights her up, you know, in the shadow is, yeah, it's really creative and cool and interesting in, in a film which is, you know, moving around constantly between the tones. Yeah. And and you've got as they're coming out, you've got this great big boom shot. And we kind of commented on a a, a boom shot that was used earlier when they were also walking to well when um uh martin and paul were walking towards the car outside the house and and this one's not quite as like in your face kind of transitional mm-hmm. boom shot but it's still there mm. but then you switch to the reverse angle shots which are clearly done with a handheld camera and i can't mm. figure out for the life of me why it's not on a dolly or something it's clearly like hand cam it's bouncing all over the place mm. and it, I think it's to give the impression of walking. Like it's that kind of, well, no, it's the opposite of Aaron Sorkin's walking shots where he, that is always on a dolly, right? But um, yeah, the the walk and talk is, is them doing going backwards. With, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and those are super smooth, right? Like you see the characters walking, but the camera is not walking. And the camera in this yeah. instance is walking. And I'm, I can't figure out why that choice was made because it, it feels wrong. Early Blair Witch inspiration? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this pre- doesn't this predate The Witch by two years, I think? A year, two years? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, something like but, that, yeah. Barely. But, um, but, but, but I mean, everyone is messing around with, you know, mm-hmm. cheaper, smaller cameras and handhelds and, yeah. you know, post, post Pulp Fiction, sorry, not post Pulp Fiction, post kind of indie crime boom. There's people trying different things and some people are going static and classical and others are, are moving around. You know, it's not we're not yet in the born era, but we are definitely starting to see out. You know, we're moving towards that mode, but also it may just be a matter of what was the best way to get close ups of them. The yeah, I'm to... I'm wondering if it's a pickup shot. Maybe it was done mm, the eleventh hour because it's also it's the scene bit. with Amy. It's the it's the the camera angle with Amy in the background rushing from screen mm. left to screen right. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering if they just did that as a last minute pickup and they didn't have time to Could set be. everything up. Especially, especially getting nighttime as well. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. Isn't this like the start of when 
like there was a lot of I'm trying to think of other movies that came out in that kind of two years before two years after time period. Mm. But isn't this kind of the start of where they like there's like kind of a push in cinematography to do something different? Like the rest of it and filming was kind of stagnant and the action revolved typically around the camera as opposed to the camera around the action and that they were trying more and more techniques now to be to have the camera filming the action as opposed to the camera being the focal point of the action. If that, if that makes sense of what I'm saying, but yeah. I thought, I thought this was kind of 95 to 99 was kind of that time period was kind of a big push. And you saw a lot of, I have to, I, I don't want to Google now cause I'm in incognito, but um, I thought during that time period, there were quite a few movies that were kind of embracing that, that type of shooting, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I think, Blair Witch is a symptom of that, right? Where they went, yeah. oh, yeah. this type of cinematography tells a story in and of itself as opposed to actually what's on the screen. Yeah. And so. Yeah, yeah you've got John Woo movies around this time that are doing things. We're just right. coming up to The Matrix, right? Obviously. Yeah. You know, oh, yes. Huge new cinematography. Cinemat I mean, we're two years out. From, I mean, 99 is a year alone. I mean, 99, you've got Go, The Matrix, Mummy, you've got um fight club you've yeah. got you know it's just this insane year of creative out possibly one of the last great flowerings of like creative stuff coming out of the out of mainstream studios there's like only a couple of those are indie yeah. you know and it's of american cinema i mean it's just like the variety across that is astonishing um yeah. but as you say that and and you know that's that's symptomatic and then blair witch as well um i think the other thing of course is we've got there's also the effect, the ongoing effect of the home video revolution mm -hmm. because you've got shot on video having already, you know, is already a thing shot on video going straight into rental markets and home video and all of that. And so there's a sense of, and also on television, we've had ER at this point and we've had NYPD blue, we've had homicide life on the street. So shaky cam is well established. Yeah. There. Yeah. You're right. And, and <clears throat> it just in this scene, yeah, I, and honestly, I don't think I'd have ever noticed it if I wasn't doing this minute by minute. But I was rewatching it today, and I saw that smooth boom shot, and then you cut to the reverse angle, and it's bouncing. And I'm just like, that's that's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This was minute fifty one of the Gross Point Buying Podcast, Debbie Radio seventy nine point five FM, featuring your hosts, co writers, and co producers, Dev Soligar and Hugh David. Today's guest was Mike from the Listening to Paint Dry podcast. Uh, Mike, tell us all about Listening to Paint Dry and where we can find it. Listening to Paint Dry is a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. It's where uh, three nerds get together and interview artists around the world about the fascinating side of miniature painting. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and well, X at Listening to Paint Dry. Awesome. And... You can also find us on, on all good podcast players as well as YouTube, Twitter, aka X, and Spotify at Debbie Radio. That's D E B I Radio. You can find us on our website, DebbieRadio.com. And again, all of those are spelled D E B I Radio. And then you can talk with us in the Facebook listeners group, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM fan club in this case. So once again, one last time, that is D E B I Radio. Sure was clear that. All of this was new Concentrating hard Like a little girl Smoking for the first time 
It was a feeling of mood.